This episode of Check the Locks is brought to you by our friends at Audible. Audible is your one-stop shop for audio entertainment where you can always find the best of what you love or discover something new. That's right. Audible offers an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from mysteries, thrillers, biographies, and of course, true crime. And as an Audible member, you can choose one title a month from their catalog to keep forever, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. Audible members also get access to thousands of podcasts from popular favorites, exclusive new series, and this very podcast you're listening to now. Plus, the Audible app makes it easy to listen anytime, anywhere. While traveling, working out, walking the dog, doing chores, Audible makes listening anywhere easy. And best of all, Check the Locks listeners can try Audible for free for 30 days. So head over to audibletrial.com slash check the locks or click the link in the show notes to start enjoying Audible today. Warning, Check the Locks podcast is a true crime podcast and may contain graphic descriptions of violence, murder, sexual assault, and more. Check the Locks podcast is not appropriate for all listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Welcome back to Check the Locks Podcast. As always, I'm John Connor. I'm Olivia Cornu. Saying thank you for joining us this week as we dive into yet another truly terrifying true crime case. Before we get started, Olivia, as always, it's good to see you. How are you doing? How has your week been? It's been a busy week, but it's been a good week. Pretty low-key. The weather here is great. It's warm. Doing pretty good. How about you? Doing pretty good. We got a lot of rain. We had some tornado warnings earlier in the week, and then that all cleared up. So it's starting to like dry out and get warm again, but... Other than that, can't really complain. Got some time off work coming up and could be using that extra time to edit and research and hopefully get a jump on some episodes and things like that. But it all in all, everything's been good. I'm really jealous of that time off you have coming up. Well, I haven't taken a day off work since June, so it's well-deserved. It's been like seven yeah. months. So I think you deserve like two weeks off. Take more time. Yeah, I get five weeks vacation. I try to stretch it out, like make sure I've got enough throughout the year because that's part of the reason that I didn't take a day off for six months is I used it all at the beginning of the year last year. So trying to make it stretch this year. So I got you. I got you. My vacation doesn't start over till July. So now I'm at the point of making it last. Oh, there you go. That's weird that it doesn't start over till July. Because we do academics. Oh, like academic year. Okay. That makes a little more sense. Yeah. Everybody where I work is like January 1st. We got our time. All right. See you guys in February. So Well, this week is your week. I'm really excited to hear about the case that you brought. We can go ahead and jump on into it, but talk to us a little bit about what we're going to be covering this week. I had never heard of this case, and I think it was just because of where I was in my life. When all this was coming out, Like I wasn't sitting around just watching the news and hearing what was happening. And Anyways, but it's actually a very sad story. So this week we're going to talk about the murder of Ashley Pittman Scott. Yeah, you sent over your notes and I was taking a quick look and it looks like it's going to be a very interesting case. And it looks like some of it takes place in Louisiana. Some of it takes place in Tennessee. So it kind of mixes worlds for both of us. So I thought that was pretty interesting. 
Yeah, so I won't give too much of it away, but Ashley Pittman was actually born and raised in my hometown and went to all of the schools that I went to from Sun City Elementary, Curtis Elementary, Elm Grove Middle School, Parkway High School. Like she graduated from my high school, Um, but we can talk about that a little bit later. Shout out to Elm Grove Middle School. We know you're listening. They might be. I got two (laughs) nephews there. Well, let's go Elm Grove, home of the Elm Groves. <laughs> I don't Eagles. know their mascot. Oh, home the of the Elm Eagles. Grove Eagles. Awesome. Well, I'm really excited. I say we jump into it. In the northwest corner of Louisiana is a town called Bossier City. In the late 70s, Bossier could be described as a quiet and quaint military community as Barksdale Air Force Base is in the backyard. Jimmy Pittman met Ashley's mother, Donna, when she was pregnant with Ashley. Ashley Pittman was born November 4, 1978, and raised in Bossier City, Louisiana. Jimmy adopted Ashley at birth. Now the family had two daughters, as Jimmy had a five-year-old daughter named Keisha from a previous relationship. Donna was a tough-love kind of mother and a stay-at-home mom. Jimmy worked for the railroad company for 37 years and was known as being a loving and doting father. Ashley met her best friends Lori and Aaron in kindergarten and in fifth grade. On a day in 1990, Donna came home to tell Jimmy she was leaving and planning to do so on Ashley's birthday, leaving Ashley, Keisha, and Jimmy to figure out life on their own. Ashley was brokenhearted when her mother left. Donna relocated and remarried in Kansas. She continued to have a relationship with her mom via phone calls and visits. Ashley continued to live with her sister and her father, Jimmy. She graduated from Parkway High School in 1996. Ashley and her friend Lori went to the same college in Arkansas. In 1998, Ashley met 22-year-old business major Jeffrey Scott. They met through a mutual friend. Ashley was described as being full of life, never meeting a stranger. She loved entertaining her friends and had a magnetic personality. Others described her as being bubbly and outgoing. Ashley saw Jeffrey as a reserved, quiet man. Jeffrey grew up in an upper-middle-class family. His dad was a business owner and his mom was a stay-at-home mom. Shortly after meeting Jeffrey, Ashley returned home from college one weekend for her best friend's wedding. She told her friends about this new relationship she was in with Jeffrey and how great he and his family were. In 1999, Ashley went back home with Jeffrey to spend Christmas with him and his family. Her sister remembers Ashley being difficult to contact during this time, and this behavior continued on through Ashley's last semester in college. Her family felt like this was unlike Ashley. Jimmy recalls Ashley calling him back one day and telling him that she does not want him calling anymore and that she can't have anything to do with him. A week or two after this initial call with Jimmy, Keisha received a letter in the mail from her sister. In the letter, Ashley said, quote, that she does not know Keisha and it's time for her to start a better life and that she's had this opportunity to do so with Jeffrey and to please respect her wishes and don't try to contact her. Her family was confused as to why this was happening. It didn't seem like her at all. So I'm not sure where this story is going to go, but I'm really getting a sense that like this isolation and being withdrawn from her family and kind of pulling back, I have a sneaking suspicion that it is probably the dynamic of this relationship and maybe Jeffrey is over-controlling or trying to isolate her, have her like be all to himself. Yeah, and I think setting up this story the way that I did, kind of describing who Ashley was in her younger years and her family and her upbringing is very important because she was around her friends all the time and just, you know, being the life of the party and always being in an activity or being involved in something, you know, all through her school years. And so I think that was important because you do start to see this switch in her behavior. 
Yeah, and especially, you know, if you've had a close relationship with somebody and then they get into a relationship with a new person, then all of a sudden they're kind of pulling back or isolating or seem to be an island. Like that's definitely a warning sign that there's something unhealthy going on. So I'm interested to see where the rest of this case goes. On Christmas 2000, Ashley and Jeffrey got engaged. She was so happy to be getting her life with Jeffrey. The couple moved to Cordova, Tennessee. Ashley was a high school English teacher and Jeffrey was working for his father's company. They got married on June 9, 2001 in Tennessee. Ashley surprisingly didn't invite her sister or her dad to the wedding. Her friends that were at the wedding felt that Ashley was living in Jeffrey's world and that she had a whole new life in Tennessee. In September of 2006, Ashley returned to Bossier City for her 10-year high school reunion. Her friends were excited to see her as she hadn't been back to Bossier City in years. Friends said she was happy but noticed that Jeffrey would call her frequently and playing that million questions game. Who are you with? What are you wearing? Have you been drinking? What are your plans? They felt it was a little controlling, but remember, that's not how Ashley depicted Jeffrey to them when they first started dating. After the reunion, Ashley's friend Lori tried to call Ashley, but would never reach her. One day, Lori gets a call from Jeff saying that Ashley had been drinking a lot to the point of falling down. He said he was worried about her, and shortly after, Ashley was arrested with a DUI. He told Lori that he felt she was on a path of self-destruction. On Thanksgiving morning of 2006, Ashley tried calling Lori, not leaving a voicemail. Lori later returned her call, leaving a voicemail, but Ashley never called back. On November 23, 2006, at 3.46 p.m., Jeffrey Scott called 911 stating that he needs an ambulance, my wife is unconscious. He told the dispatcher that she was breathing but bleeding from her nose. When asked what happened, he says, I'm not sure, and says she's been unconscious all morning. Officer Sloan Liddell was the first person to arrive on the scene after the 911 call was received. When he entered the home, he saw a male administering CPR to Ashley on the ground. And this guy will later be identified as Dr. Roger McGee. And we'll talk about him a little later. EMS and fire arrived on the scene. Officer Liddell testified that the victim appeared to have been beaten in the head. Jeffrey told police that he and Ashley had an argument about a text message that was on her phone. The argument turned into a physical altercation and he admitted to only hitting her once. He said that the bruising was from her drinking too much and falling down. Gary Garman was a firefighter paramedic for the Memphis Fire Department. At the time, he had been with the department for 13 years. He was previously active duty in the Army for 24 years. Half of those years he spent as a medic, including a tour in Iraq. He recalled his initial examination where he noticed the victim suffered blunt trauma to her head. Her clothes were fully removed and they found she had also had blunt trauma to her legs, chest, and back. She had a faint pulse, not breathing, and her pupils were dilated and not responsive. Once EMS and police realized that Ashley sustained more injuries than initially thought, Jeffrey was arrested on the scene. He declined a statement. Police took pictures of Jeffrey's hands and noted they were free of injuries. This suggested that he must have used an object to assault Ashley. He was charged with aggravated assault. Ashley died at 7.52 p.m. on Thanksgiving Day of 2006. Jeffrey was now being charged with first-degree murder of his wife, Ashley Pittman Scott. As we're going through the story, I'm just kind of putting myself in the mindset of her family and friends because Mm -hmm. here's this person that I've loved, that I care about, that I'm used to spending all this time with, and then over a period of time, they've gradually become more distant, drifted away, and isolated, and you're worried about them, like you know something's going on, and then you get this terrible news. You know what I mean? Like this just got to be absolutely devastating and heartbreaking on so many levels. Cause it's feels like you would almost be like part of you knew something like this was coming. Yeah. It's really kind of scary that someone can 
make you be so distant from your family? Like, I can't imagine that someone could just come in and just separate me like that and then not be able to, you know, you don't know what's happening behind closed doors. And you don't know that if anytime she tries to call her sister or her dad or her friends, that he's not hitting her or hurting her, you know, so at some point you probably give up, I would assume. Yeah. And especially, you know, we've talked about it before, but like if the relationship starts well, because again, these kind of relationships don't ever start with a person hitting you. It's something that gradually happens over time and they slowly begin to reveal who they actually are to you. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I'm sure Mm -hmm. either you're like, well, I know this isn't this person. It's like hard. It's just hard to get out of those situations. And you want to believe that the person that you're with is the person that you met and like who you thought they were. You know what I mean? And so you like barter. I don't know. It's just incredibly heartbreaking. Like I can't imagine. I've had friends who have been in relationships and you don't see them for a while because it's just a a toxic dynamic you know what i mean and luckily nothing has ever ended up like this but you know you talk to them years later when they're like yeah i'm i'm sorry you know i was yeah it wasn't healthy and so this is like the worst case scenario when it comes to that you know mm-hmm. it's so tough autopsy results showed that jeffrey's story was in fact impossible it showed that ashley was severely beaten she had bilateral subdural hemorrhages which is basically bleeding on both sides of her brain, but not inside the brain tissue itself. So two blood clots basically pushing in on the brain on both sides. Um, She had bleeding in her brainstem, and she had something called uncle herniation, which is never good. It's basically when the brain tissue is so swollen that it pushes on other brain structures. And then they also found abrasions and contusions to her face, head, and lips, and then abrasions, contusions of the torso and extremities. So, I mean, she'd been beaten pretty badly. And it sounds like this may be something that was done over time, perhaps, or was this all? Um, We'll get into that a little bit more, but all of this bleeding in her brain. So this is kind of like my bread and butter of what my day job is. If I could pick a CT scan, a CAT scan of a brain that had all of these, and this was my patient, it would be, it's devastating. I mean, that's what it is. It's devastation. There's not much coming back from this. Yeah, that sounds terrible. She had a shoe print on her torso, and there were injuries of various ages throughout her body. During the investigation, police obtained Ashley's phone records, and a week prior to her death, she called her friend Lori from a closet, telling her that she was afraid and that she and Jeff were fighting, and he was really mad at her. She told Lori that while she was back in her hometown of Bossier City for her high school reunion, Jeffrey had hired and brought a prostitute to their home. She also disclosed to Lori that Jeff had admitted to having an affair with his co-worker Blair Brown. Blair and Ashley had developed a friendship prior to the affair, and this relationship ended for obvious reasons. About a year after the affair, Ashley reached out to Blair, mending the relationship. Blair was a huge help to police as she had spent a lot of time with Ashley and Jeffrey together. She recalls moments where Jeffrey showed up and started hitting Ashley and how verbally abusive he was to her. Now on November 22nd, two days before Thanksgiving, Ashley was planning to leave Jeffrey. She had hired a divorce attorney. Ashley told the attorney about all the abuse and provided pictures of injuries. The lawyer told her not to go home. Ashley felt compelled to tell Jeffrey Scott what her plan was, so she returned home. Yeah, that definitely seems like it would be enough to end a marriage. I know if Kara went out of town and then she got back and found out that I had paid for a prostitute and then brought them back to our house, or if I was having an affair with her friend and her friend was like, hey, we're cool, it just makes that betrayal extra sharp. If that makes sense, because it's not like you're just out with some random person or you were at the bar and one thing led to another. It's like 
this is someone who's supposed to be my friend. You are now both lying to me, you know? So I could definitely see how that would put those wheels in motion. And I could see how that would be the final straw. You know what I mean? To say like, okay, I was putting up with abuse and this and that because I thought maybe at some point you would get back to the person that I knew, but like, this is what shows me that was never you in the first place. And I didn't do too much explaining about this, but I'll, you know, kind of take it back. So Jeffrey worked for his father's company and Blair worked with Jeffrey at that company. So he had introduced Blair to his wife and that's how that bond became. And then the affair developed, you know, so it's just like, it's someone that your husband's going to work with every day as well, you know? But I'm glad that she did the right thing and testified and was a strong witness to the abuse. And I think that helped police make this case. Yeah. And I'm also wondering, too, if, you know, in her head, she was like, oh, man, that could have been me. You know what I mean? Like how lucky I am that I didn't get more involved with this person and mm-hmm. this be my story, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Olivia, you know that I'm a girl, Dad. Of course I do, John. You have an adorable four-year-old. That's right, and I have to be honest, I haven't always been great at picking out the cutest outfits for her, but I have found the solution. Now what's that? Great Lakes Kids Apparel. From dresses, pajamas, raglan tees, rompers, and more, Great Lakes Kids Apparel has everything, and my kiddo loves their clothes. But aren't kids' clothes really expensive? And they wear them out and outgrow them so fast. Well, that's the best part. Great Lakes Kids Apparel offers affordable, wearable, and playable clothes, so no matter how hard your child plays, they last. In fact, I have to fight my daughter to take them off long enough just to get them into the wash. That sounds awesome, but do they take forever to ship? No way. Great Lakes Kids Apparel is based out of Ohio and offers fast shipping, usually within two business days. Plus, they offer free shipping on all orders over $50, and you can sign up for their awesome rewards program and earn GLK bucks. Wow, John, that sounds like I need to send out some gifts from Great Lakes Kids Apparel. How do I check them out? All you have to do is head over to GreatLakesKidsApparel.com or click the link in the show description to start shopping today. Again, that's GreatLakesKidsApparel.com. And don't forget to use the promo code LOCKS at checkout to save 20% off your first order. It was later determined that Ashley and Jeffrey started fighting in the living room. The couple had been drinking, which Jeffrey said heightened the argument. There was evidence that the fighting went on throughout the entire house. Busted windows, blood splatter in several rooms. He beat and kicked her until he threw her out in the garage unconscious, leaving her there for the night. In the morning, Jeffrey went to find Ashley still unconscious on the garage floor. He carried her inside the house, laying her in front of the fireplace in the living room. After some time, Ashley, still unconscious, was carried up the stairs by Jeffrey and placed in their bed. It was about this time that Jeffrey called his friend, Dr. Roger McGee. At this point, Ashley had been unconscious for more than 12 hours. Jesus, that's horrific. Yeah. yeah. Just to leave someone, I could never raise my hand to my wife. Yeah, you know, It's just not in me. It's, I've got issues. I've got things that you know I talk about in therapy, but that is definitely not one of them. You know what I mean? So to yeah. think that somebody is capable of doing that and then just leaving them in the garage is heartbreaking. It really is. I mean, this, this story is just really sad. Very much so. Dr. Roger McGee showed up about an hour after Jeffrey called and told him to immediately call 911. McGee had been friends with Jeffrey Scott for over 20 years and was a resident physician at the time of the murder. 
He later testified in court and reported that he received a call from Jeffrey on the afternoon of Thanksgiving Day 2006. McGee said that Jeffrey asked what he was doing for the rest of the day and if he could come by to check on Ashley as he felt she wasn't doing well. McGee reported that Jeffrey's voice had an element of concern but did not sound urgent. Jeffrey told McGee that she was not waking up or acting right. He asked McGee to come alone. The doctor had his family with him and drove to drop them off at his parents' house and proceeded over to the Scott's house. When McGee arrived, he met Jeffrey in the living room. The pair then continued to the couple's bedroom where Ashley was lying on the floor next to the bed. Dr. McGee testified that the victim was severely bruised and beaten. He asked Jeffrey what happened, and Jeffrey replied that he and Ashley got into an argument. McGee told Jeffrey to immediately call 911. He told police that Ashley had vomit coming from her mouth and her nose. She was not wearing shoes, and her hands and feet were bluish and mottled. She also had bruises on her forehead and around her right eye. Paula Haygood was the police dispatcher on Thanksgiving in Memphis when the call from Jeffrey Scott came through. She testified in court that she immediately notified her supervisor that the call could very much be a homicide. She heard them say on the other line, quote, she's dead. Paula repeated and said, did I hear you say she's dead? Multiple physicians and nurses testified in court recalling the night Ashley was brought into the emergency room, appearing so badly beaten. Dr. Smith testified that himself, an ICU doctor, and a neurosurgeon came to the conclusion that the patient was officially brain dead. The defense argued that Ashley's injuries were caused by alcoholic ketoacidosis, which is a derangement of the body's metabolism based upon the abuse of alcohol. They continued to claim that the cause of death was blunt force trauma that occurred as a result of falling or having seizures caused by this ketoacidosis. The state was able to disprove this theory when expert witness Dr. Chancellor said that the chain of events that led to the victim's death started with blunt force injuries to the head that led to the subdural hematoma that then led to the brain swelling and herniation, which led to the brainstem hemorrhage and caused her death. She said that all the medical workup were all consistent with someone who had suffered a severe traumatic injury and no lab values pointed to alcoholic ketoacidosis. On January 19, 2009, the court listened to closing arguments. The verdict was read as guilty of murder in the second degree. Now remember, he was initially charged with first-degree murder. So in the state of Tennessee, all 12 jurors must agree to obtain the first-degree guilty verdict, and one juror did not agree. Jeffrey was found guilty of second-degree murder of his wife, Ashley Pittman. He was sentenced to 25 years without parole. Family and friends believe justice was not served for Ashley, given the reduced sentence he received. Yeah, I could definitely imagine why they would feel that way. You know, 25 years and you've lost your best friend or your daughter or your sister. 25 years doesn't seem like a lot. I mean, if he was convicted in 2009, then he's going to be released in 2034, which is only 11 years from now. You know, so I can imagine in your head, if you are a loved one of a victim like this, like there's a countdown. Being like, well, this guy's only got to serve this much time and it's only X amount of time till he's out. And I think you said he'd be roughly 56 when he gets out. So like, you know, he took Ashley's life and then he gets such a large portion of his life left to live. It just probably doesn't seem very fair. No, not at all. And I can't even imagine being her friends and knowing that this was happening to your best friend. Had they known or been more aware or attuned to what was happening, maybe this wouldn't have happened to her, you know? But the seclusion that he made her feel, where he took her away from her sister and her dad. I mean, she quit talking to a man who adopted her from birth, and her mother left her, and she was still raised by this man who wasn't her biological father. And just to cut someone like that off, you know, that's tough. 
And you never know what people are dealing with behind closed doors. And it's a very scary world. And this is just a case of true manipulation. He manipulated her in so many ways. Yeah, and especially thinking about her father, who is someone who has adopted her and has like made the choice that like I'm going to love you like my own. Like I love you so much that it doesn't matter if you came from me or not. Like I love you as if you're my own flesh and blood. You know what I mean? And then to have that person completely disconnect from you. And I think the survivor's guilt for her family and friends is probably a very real thing to be like, man, I just wish I would have known or would have taken it more seriously. And it's not anybody's fault in that situation, but like you carry that around. It's very hard to not assign yourself blame in that moment. You know what I mean? And and when you think about like, oh, well, I could have done this or I should have done this or what if I would have done this? You know what I mean? So I don't know if we're getting into the deadbolt test. You have a real habit of picking the ones that kind of get under my skin because this is one of those things I've talked about before where it's you make a commitment to someone, you start a life with somebody thinking that they're a certain way and really there is just a monster underneath. You know, when that happens, people aren't always equipped with the skills that they need to get out of those situations and unfortunately things like this can happen, you know, and it's just that idea of like, I'm going to sleep next to a monster and it probably started with something small, like, you know, a slap and it's like, I'm sorry, I would never, you know, I'll never do that again. And it escalates to I'm having sex with prostitutes, sex workers in our living room. And then I'm beating the hell out of you and leaving you a garage overnight. It's just, it's heartbreaking. I'm going to put this one solid nine for me. Like, I don't think this is anything that I would have to worry about personally. But again, it's like that idea that like, you know, I'm married. What one day she could snap. You know what I mean? And it's just you don't ever know. You can guess and put as much like faith and trust that like the person that I married is the person that they're presenting themselves to be. But there are those monsters that it's only a matter of time before they show you who they really are. So for me, this is a nine. But what about you? Yeah, I think I go back to this whole isolation and her being away from her family and living in Tennessee. And she had, you know, a group of people there. But, you know, friends that you make as adults and not all relationships, but I'd say most of your relationships that you make as an adult. Like, I don't think that those are the people that you necessarily want to talk about at work, like your co-teachers that she's working with. Like, my husband's beating me. You don't really have that outlet. And then when your husband is preventing you from speaking to the people you're closest to, I mean, that's the biggest red flag in domestic abuse is the isolation. And she probably just didn't have anyone to reach out to, to be able to tell. I'm going to give this one a nine also. There's a show called American Monster, and this case was an episode. And so during my research, I sat down and watched the show. And as I'm watching it, the story starts in my hometown. You know, it talks about just like here, who she is, where she's from, where she went to school. And as I'm going through this and listening to what is happening and doing my research and reading the court reports, I'm seeing myself in this situation. This woman went to all the schools that I went to. She had her close friends. My best friend from high school is still one of my very two of them are my dearest best friends. And it's like I came home from my 10 year high school reunion. I did that. I lived away at that time. And so a lot of the how her life pattern was happening was very similar to mine. And so I feel like I just put myself in the situation of this could have been anybody. This happened to someone that's from my little small town. And you just never know who you're marrying and who you're trusting. And so it just didn't settle well with me. And so I might give it a nine. And I just feel so heartbroken for her and for her friends. You know, her friend that missed her call on Thanksgiving. The guilt and the sadness that you may feel from that. Like, What if she would have been able to get that phone call? 
and I know that people work through things in different ways, but I, I would just, I just don't know how I would deal with that and how I would get beyond that and be like, I missed it. If I would have answered that phone call, like I could have saved her. And that's kind of where my head goes with this whole thing. Yeah. And that's that piece I was talking about with the survivor's guilt, because again, like you have those feelings and then there's also the reality of like, even if I would have answered that phone call, like maybe it wasn't this time, maybe it was the next time he got angry Mm -hmm. or like after she moved out, maybe it's the time that he shows up at her, you know what I mean? Like you can only do what you can. I think those like would have and should have, and what if I had done this or I could have done this? I think those are the things that would kind of eat you from the inside out, you know? And I, th- I think talking about what you were saying where it's like, you know, didn't feel comfortable talking to, you know, any of the other teachers or anybody that she worked with, like not even like the comfortable thing for me, but more so like, I'm sure there's an embarrassment that comes mm-hmm. with that, that like, yeah, you're embarrassed that you're in this situation and maybe you don't know how to get out of it. Or maybe like people are going to think you're a weak person because some you're allowing this to happen to yourself when it's really like, it's all this huge mental game and gaslighting from this person. And it's, you know, it's, it's hard not to carry like a sense of guilt around about it. And I did, you know, if you're listening to this episode, heaven forbid anybody is listening to this and you are experiencing anything like that. If you are, please know that help is available. We've talked about this before, but you can call the domestic violence hotline at 800-799-7233. Again, that's 800-799-7233. You can also text the word start S T A R T to eight, eight, seven, eight, eight. If you need help finding that first step to get out of that situation. So just something I wanted to put out there, but you know, again, it's just, I think we're both on the same page with this just being one of those kinds of cases that just gets underneath your skin. Like this is one that I'm going to be thinking about for a couple of days. Yeah. It's just very sad. It's devastating. It's really, really just sad. Well, that is where the murder of Ashley Pittman Scott falls on our deadbolt test. But as always, we would like to know where does this fall on your deadbolt test? You can let us know. Reach out to us on Instagram at Check the Locks Pod. Find us on Twitter at Check the Locks. And if you are not in our Facebook group, do yourself a favor. Come hang out with us. We would love to interact with you. We're in there hanging out every single day, people posting local stories and just getting to know each other and really focusing on building that community. So if you're not in our Facebook group, come hang out with us. We would absolutely love to have you. Olivia, I can't lie. This story, while it's very good, and I'm glad that we talked about it because I think it hits on a lot of important things, I need a little bit of a pick-me-up. What do you got for us? You got a five-star review? I do. This week's five-star review comes from M. McGurham, and they said, I absolutely love this podcast. It's very well done and such great cases. I am hooked and binged every episode, but two in a week's time. This is hands down my favorite, and I have listened to a lot of true crime podcasts. Keep rocking it. So thank you, M. McGurum. And M. McGurum is M-M-C-G-U-I-R-M, just in case you don't know what your name is, M. McGurum. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, thank you, M. McGurum, for taking the time to leave us that wonderful review. We honestly and truly appreciate you sharing how you feel about the show. We're so happy that you've been binging it and enjoying it. And we would love to send you some swag. We've got stickers. We've got buttons. Olivia, I'm getting your stuff out in the mail this week, so I don't want to hear about it. That's before you jump on my back. <laughs> this is my third week, I think, to harass you about keychains. Keychains are coming. I'm going tomorrow when my wife gets home from work. I've got it in my calendar. But Emma Gurham, we would love to send you some stuff. Reach out to us. You can find us on Instagram at Check the Locks Pod, Twitter at Check the Locks. If you're in our Facebook group, reach out, let us know. 
We would love to get you some goodies. If you're not a social person, that's totally fine. Head over to checkthelockspod.com, click the email button, drop us a line, and let us know that it is you, and we would love to get something out to you. Also, if you're at Check the Locks Pod, we want to hear your voicemails. Click that microphone, leave us a message. We would love to hear from you. Play it on the show. Olivia, if somebody wants to have their five-star review read on the podcast, what is the best way to do that? Well, they need to hop on over to the Apple Podcast app, scroll all the way down on our shows page, and click all five stars and tell us what you think. And on the topic of the voicemails, I think I'm going to have to start pouting and begging again. When I made a big fuss about it, people were leaving me voicemails. So everyone, leave me a voicemail. And John too. Yeah, I want to hear what people sound like. And maybe if you're in the Facebook group, if you're not in the Facebook group, go ahead and join. But maybe if we get a couple of voicemails, I'll start sending out some special things. You know, we've got stuff that we don't really talk about, like coasters. There's check the locks clocks. Maybe we'll send out something cool. So please leave us a voicemail because we would love to hear from you. We are not past the point of bribing. We will <laughs> give you stuff. We want to hear from you. So please leave us that voicemail. We got keychains. <laughs> we got keychains, that's for sure. And also, if you've taken the time to leave us a review, thank you so much for doing that again. I know we've talked about this every week, but those reviews help us get in front of more listeners. They get us in other shows' recommendations, help us to grow our community. So if you have left us that review, thank you so much for doing so. If not, just like Olivia said, head over to Apple Podcasts. You can click the link in the show notes for a cheat code. It'll take you right there. But we'd love to hear what you think. And as always, if you're interested in supporting Check the Locks, there are several ways that you can do that. We do have a Patreon. So if you head over to patreon.com forward slash check the locks, you can sign up, donate monthly. We have a lot of cool things in there like exclusive stickers, coffee mugs, t-shirts. We're going to be doing some bonus episodes, maybe some video content. We've got some ideas kicking around. So please head over to Patreon if you do want to support us. If you cannot afford to financially support the show, that is not a problem at all. Just listening every week, coming and hanging out with us, it means absolutely just as much to us. So if you're listening, you're spending time with us, you're sharing the show with your friends and family, just know from the bottom of our hearts, we truly do appreciate that. And again, we're just trying to grow our community and make sure that we're getting in front of as many people as we can. So thank you for your support. We truly, truly appreciate it. That is all that we have for this week's episode. Please make sure that you are subscribed to check the locks on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. We will see you next week with a brand new, truly terrifying true crime case. But until then, don't forget to check the locks. See you next week.